The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading to London, England, where a string of grisly murders have been committed in and around Hyde Park. Most recently, a doctor and known associate of Dr. Henry Jekyll was found dead. But newspaper man Bruce Adams is hot on the case, along with the showgirl and suffragette Vicki Adams, and two disgraced American policemen, Slim and Tubby, both eager to get back into the good graces of Scotland Yard. As Vicki grows closer to Bruce, however, Dr. Jekyll's hidden feelings towards her begin to transform into something sinister. But surely, there's no reason to suspect such an upstanding, well-respected citizen could be capable of murder, right? Can Slim and Tubby save their jobs and catch the real killer before he finds his next victim? Are they even sure they have the right guy? And why am I suddenly craving cheese? Hey, governor, brace yourself for a madcap adventure across London's rooftops and through its foggy streets, and join us as we discuss Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about the 1953 horror comedy, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm the invisible Dan Colon, and joining me as always is my co-host, the many-faced monster, Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? How's it going, Dan? I am both born to kill and wearing a peace button. It's the duality of man. Well, here we are with Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meeting their third monster. This time, it's Dr. Jekyll and his evil alter ego, Mr. Hyde. Now, this is our first time encountering Jekyll and Hyde on this show. While Mm. not usually included with Universal's classic monsters, there's no denying that Jekyll and Hyde are classic horror characters. Originally published in 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson's gothic novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is one of the most adapted stories of all time. It was first adapted for the stage in 1887, and over the years, there have been tons of other adaptations for the stage, as well as radio, TV, and film. In fact, there have been no few than 123 film adaptations made, beginning with a 1908 silent film directed by Otis Turner, produced by William N. Selig, and starring Hobart Bosworth and Betty Hart. Unfortunately, there are no longer any known copies of this film in existence, so we may never see it, which makes it very sad. Our listeners may be familiar with the 1920 film starring John Barrymore and or the Academy Award-winning 1931 film starring Frederick March. However, both of these were Paramount productions. The earliest universal connection I could find was in 1913, when Carl Lemley Sr. produced a silent two-reel short film for independent moving pictures, the precursor to Universal Pictures. This film, available on YouTube, stars King Bago, the first individually publicized leading man in America, in the dual role of Jekyll and Hyde. 
As was the standard practice at the time, Bago applied his own makeup and a series of camera dissolves were used to help him become Mr. Hyde, not unlike Lon Chaney's Wolfman. And it is worth checking out. But outside of this Abbott and Costello comedy, Universal didn't really touch Jekyll and Hyde again until 2002 when they distributed a small independent British film starring John Hanna and David Warner. And then, of course, Jekyll and Hyde were at the center of what was going to be their dark universe. He was their Nick Fury, so to speak. Yeah, Russell Crowe. So even though Universal doesn't officially include Jekyll and Hyde in their lineup of classic monsters, we felt it was important to include Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde here on this podcast because it just felt right. So much of it feels like vintage Universal horror, and it's got Boris Karloff in it. Plus, it would have been the only Abbott and Costello monster movie we didn't discuss here. So, you know, here we are. Now, Mike, I I don't think we've introduced a new monster since The Wolfman, and that was Mm -hmm. like 15 episodes ago. So I'm really excited to ask, what's your history with Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah, Universal has definitely been dancing around using Jekyll and Hyde in some form or another, working it in sort of on the side, whether it be in look with Igor uh, in the past, as I now see, or I think that one John Carradine role. However it is, yes, I'm glad that Universal has finally uh, gotten their hands on this property. Now, I've read the book a while ago. I absolutely love the 1931 movie. If I recall, it starts with a very amazing first person perspective opening tracking shot from Very the cool. perspective of Dr. Jekyll and it's like almost the length of an entire reel. I've, I mean that movie's amazing. I love the 41 version. I've seen that a lot too. Is that the one with Spencer Tracy and Ingrid Bergman? Yes, Spencer Tracy yeah. is unhinged in that movie. I've always quite enjoyed the concept of Jekyll and Hyde or Jekyll and Hyde, or as they say in this movie at one point, Jekyll and Hyde, I think. However you want to slice it. And I don't think it's any mystery if you listen to the show in previous episodes, my love of the Hulk. I think this Mm -hmm. most definitely mirrors the Incredible Hulk story closer than any other of the original classic monsters in America. Dr. Banner was a scientist trying to unlock the inner strength, our primal urges and things like that. I mean, it's basically this story that kind of adds to my love of it. It's very primal, right? I mean, the concept that there are two sides to us, perhaps, or that there is this uh, beast in us that we are trying to keep caged. And, you know, however you want to say if it's good or bad, you know, nowadays self-medicating with media or however you do it and that we just, you know, neutering ourselves or whatever. It's just a fascinating thing to kind of unravel when you have the time to talk about it. And I think like the movie does such a great way of dramatizing that visually, you know, with the stark contrast between Jekyll and Hyde themselves. Yes. And, and I think, you know, they, there's also very interesting modern readings about mental health and, and things of that nature. You know, is he actually transforming or is it just, you know, another actual side of him or all of that is all very profound and fun to talk about. So I'm very excited that we got to include this in Universal in this show talking about the Universal series. Now, just quickly about this version, Dan, that we're going to probably talk more <laughs> about, but I just want to kind of like unravel my thesis about it at the top here is I really feel like Universal took this opportunity to make their Jekyll and Hyde film and do it in the fashion of the way they introduced all their older original monsters. And then they're like, oh, wait, we need to put Abbott and Costello in this too. Yes. It's a universal monster movie with Abbott and Costello. So like I was 
fond of that going into it. Now, whether or not it's a good movie or succeeds, we'll get into it. But ultimately, I enjoyed this one. So I'll just start with that. At some point in this episode, I wanted to say that the thing that I like about most about this movie is that you're right. It doesn't make a joke out of the monsters, right? It kind of goes back to that thinking with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where the monsters were still the monsters that we knew from their previous films, but then they sort of dropped Abbott and Costello into this story. Now, the comedy here is a little too broad at times, in my opinion, but for the most part, I love that Abbott and Costello were just sort of dropped into a Jekyll and Hyde story until like maybe the second half when it's really just all jokes. There's a lot of really cool horror stuff in there. It looks like an old universal horror film, you know, and, and it could have been played totally straight. And maybe that's like the one regret is that they didn't get a chance to make a perfectly straight Jekyll and Hyde adaptation. Yeah, it's not perfect, but I do love that about it, that it is pretty straight until Abbott and Costello come in and then it becomes comedy and then it goes back to being kind of a straight horror film and then back to comedy as it should be as far as I'm concerned. It almost reminded me more in the vein of like what James Wales was doing with his comedy, the way he would sprinkle that in. I mean, especially like, you know, Bride of Frankenstein type stuff. Like in the Abbott and Costello stuff in this, it almost feels too far in the other direction. Like if this was just two other actors playing Slim and Tubby, then I, I think like they would cut out like half the bits, you know, we'd, we'd lose maybe 10 minutes from this movie. But all in all, I was way happier this time around with the language of comedy and, and definitely the grammar of the film itself overall. Like it looks amazing. There's some incredible shots. The makeup's great. The acting's a lot of fun. Seeing Karloff and the boys together is, is just a treat you know so like i was just having a great time largely the comedy here works better for me than it did when they met the invisible man right that was just sort of like full tilt off the rails comedy with horror like not even a consideration here we get some jokes that i like you sort of mentioned like i sort of touched upon just kind of go a little too far in the other direction but for the most part a lot of the comedy here i did find funny i did laugh quite a bit but as for my my history with jekyll and hyde i'm not really sure specifically where i I first learned about this story and these characters, they're so ingrained in popular culture that it's tough for me to really pinpoint it, right? I remember in the 90s, the musical Jekyll and Hyde was very popular. I've never seen it. I remember it being talked about a lot of uh, in my theater circles. I remember a lot of kids really being into Jekyll and Hyde. It feels like it would lend itself very well to the stage. I'm sure I read the novella at some point for school. Speaking of The Incredible Hulk, I remember Jekyll and Hyde in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of takes that idea to its logical conclusion, right? One of my favorite versions of the story is Hammer Productions' The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll with Paul Massey and Christopher Lee. Have you seen that version? I haven't, and I love the Hammer stuff I've seen, so now I'm anxious to watch it. What's cool about that version of the story is that Dr. Jekyll is kind of this, like, bland i wouldn't necessarily say ugly but you know he's kind of like the more uglier of the two when he transforms into mr hyde he becomes this very handsome debonair kind of man about town who you know is also evil oh oh, so he's like the nutty professor in a lot of ways. Yeah. Sort of flips it from a, a visual perspective. Yeah, I really like that film. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember really, really liking it, so I should probably revisit it. It's the concept, but twisted to be, you know, from a geek to an Adonis instead. 
Yeah, so let's get into the history here. Again, I don't have a whole lot. These other non-Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello comedies don't have a whole lot of information available. But I was able to dive a little deeper into some of the cast, so we'll have plenty to talk about there. Once again, the film's produced by Howard Christie and directed by Charles Lamont. The screenplay was written by Lee Loeb and longtime Abbott and Costello writer John Grant, based on a story by Sid Fields, also a frequent Abbott and Costello collaborator, and Grant Garrett. Both Lee Loeb and John Grant are going to go on to write Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. So it's been some time since I watched that one. I'm hoping that based on just these two guys writing it, that it will be a lot better than the Invisible Man film. Yeah, yeah. Closer to this. Production began on January 26th, 1953 and wrapped on February 20th. So if you're listening to this episode as we release it, the film was literally in production 70 years ago. That's so cool. Wow. I love that. Yeah, very fun. As for our cast, we've got Bud Abbott as Slim, Lou Costello as Tubby, which, let me just get this out of the way right now, worst character names that I think I could possibly imagine. Yeah, like, how just lazy is this? I mean, Slim isn't offensive, but don't go around calling someone overweight Tubby. You know, I've noticed a trend of bullying towards, you know, Lou Costello, and I don't like it. It's not very tasteful. I will say that as much as I love Abbott and Costello, not all of their comedy translates well in 2020. I mean, these are just uninspired. This guy's thin. This guy's kind of fat. So we're going to call him Slim and Tubby. By this point, they must have just been running out of names. I don't know why they didn't just keep the characters from Abbott and Costello beat Frankenstein and keep it all in continuity. Uh, I guess they wanted to have them be flexible, but who knows? Well, I understand why they might need to be new characters, right? Because it just feels like a completely different time and place. And in fact, Dan, I'll just say now, this is what I wanted last time, right? When I was like, I wanted to be in jolly old England with lots of fog and stuff. So I'm excited about that. But, you know, last time we talked about this too, where I was like, how lazy is it that they just called themselves Bud and Lou? I was like, right. like they took the time to be lazier somehow. It's so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go through a laundry list of things I don't like about this movie. We'll get to them when we get to them. But uh, that's one of the things that I feel like just could have been better. The great Boris Karloff, the icon. Oh, so good. We've talked about him for hours on this show, so we don't really need to introduce him. He plays Dr. Henry Jekyll here. He's also credited as Mr. Hyde, but that's not entirely true. Mr. Hyde was played by his stunt double, Eddie Parker. Oh, Parker was an American stuntman and an actor most well-known for Westerns and horror films. Uh, He was uncredited for what appears to be his entire 28-year career. No. He had almost 450 stunt credits, including Werewolf of London, The Ghost of Frankenstein, The Mummy's Tomb, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, where he played Lon Chaney's stunt double, or he was Lon Chaney's stunt double, and then in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. This wouldn't be the monsters that made us if there wasn't also a batman connection parker doubled for lewis wilson as batman in the 15 part 1943 theatrical serial batman which was the first time batman had ever appeared on film incredible this serial also established some of the permanent elements of batman's mythos including the bat cave and its secret entrance through the grandfather clock in wayne manor oh my god it later spawned another serial batman and robin in 1949 and in 1965 the entire first Batman serial was re-released theatrically as An Evening with Batman and Robin to great success, paving the way for the 1966 TV series that we all know and love. So we have that serial to thank for our 1966 Adam West Batman. Wow. The legacy of stunt 
men and women in Hollywood and they need their due. I mean, it's been talked about for years. They should get an Oscar category, like all this. Absolutely. We on this show love to point out um, amazing stunts and those daring feats of entertainment. You know, they risk their lives just so that we could say, oh my God, look at that. Mm -hmm. And so to find out all this and go deeper about that and you know, the Batman connection. I mean, I just, this is just awesome. Like, this is what the show for me is all about. So it's so cool. Parker died in 1960 after suffering a heart attack, but his final movie credit, and I know you'll appreciate this one, Mike, was Stanley Kubrick's sword and sandal epic Spartacus. Oh, wow. He is Spartacus. That's awesome. So that's cool. Batman was Mr. Hyde, was Spartacus, is all of us. Like, this is amazing. So one thing about Karloff, man, and this is might sound unbelievable, but I didn't know he was in this movie because we decided to do it late and it was kind of a late discovery. So when I saw his name pop up, I was like, oh, hell yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. that was that was just great seeing him in another Universal movie. Apparently, like, you know how there are these stories that Karloff and Lugosi were like these rivals who did not like each other? You know, I mean... According to the movie... Ed Wood, right? Yeah. Apparently, a lot of people who buy into that idea cite this movie as an example of it being true because, you know, Karloff was famously done playing the Frankenstein monster. He sort of laughed off the idea of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He thought it was kind of silly. In fact, right. Universal had, they had to pay him to show up to the premiere and just for the publicity. He did it on the condition that he didn't actually have to watch the movie. So now you got Lugosi, whose career has sort of got another resurgence a little bit because of that one. And now Karloff's like, shit, Lugosi is back. I got to do something now. And so oh. now here he is with Abbott and Costello. He did it twice because the, he also appeared in Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff. I'm sure we'll get to that one as a bonus episode. So we decided not to do it because he doesn't play like a monster monster. That's an interesting theory because, yeah, I remember hearing Bella's career kind of got a, another kickstart from, like you just said, like, he, you know, he showed up to do that movie and then Karloff wasn't Frankenstein. There's a bit of a Frankenstein gag in this movie. I don't know. I don't want to think that Karloff like is a guy who would sweep in and steal someone's thunder like that. But since it's working, maybe now he wants to like join the fun. And I, I don't, don't blame anyone for that. I like to believe that they were friends. Uh, most of the stories that I hear support the idea that they were friends with each other uh, off screen. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that he discredited Abin Costello meet Frankenstein. Lugosi decided to be in that one. And then that's a success. And now Karloff is working with Abin mm. Costello for two movies. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence, but I don't know that there's necessarily any mean spiritedness in there either. My one thought was like, you know, Bella only played one monster, but then again, like Karloff's not playing Frankenstein's monster. He's playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So it's like a new thing, but he will revive the killer character. So like, I don't know. Abbott and Costello can't exactly run into Igor on his own. Right. Speaking of stuntmen, I want to get this guy mentioned real quick. Vic Parks was Lou Costello's longtime stunt double. He also played the Costello version of Hyde. Oh, did he also play the mouse man? <laughs> maybe not, because there's no real stunt work involved with that character. So maybe, I don't know. I feel like Lou Costello could have just worn a mouse head and gotten through those scenes on his own. But yeah, Vic Parks also uncredited. Let's see, Craig Stevens plays Bruce Adams. He was born Gail Shickles Jr. Uh, he was an American film and TV actor. Uh, after looking at his filmography, this guy did a lot of television over the course of his almost 50-year career, way more than I can even begin to cover here. You may recognize him from one thing. I'm getting to it. Pretty big. Performing in his university's drama club inspired him to head out to Hollywood, where under the name Michael Gale, 
he appeared as a sailor in his first screen role in 1939's Coast Guard. He then changed his stage name to Craig Stevens and then mostly landed supporting roles, including a cameo in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, before joining the U.S. Army Corps' first motion picture unit based in Culver City, California, where he acted in a number of propaganda and training films. That unit became known as, quote, the Culver City Commandos. End quote. Throughout most of the 40s, he worked at Warner Brothers, again, mostly supporting roles. And in the 50s, he continued to work in film, but began his transition to television, often appearing in guest spots or on various variety shows. And then in 1958, he gained national prominence for his starring role in the TV series Peter Gunn, which was produced by Henry Blake of Pink Panther fame. Interestingly, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was not his only brush with the Universal Monsters. From 1975 to 1976, he co starred with David McCallum in the only season of NBC's The Invisible Man TV show. Wait, what? There was a yep. TV show? Dan, I think we got to watch this for the show. <laughs> we might have to watch that show for the show. Oh, I'm excited. Well, I mean, it is an NBC show, so it would be, fall under the NBC Universal umbrella. If we can find a copy, I mean, it only lasted one season. I didn't check how many episodes, but yeah. So he was also on The Invisible Man after he was done playing Peter Gunn. Well, I'll tell you this much. The pilot is on YouTube, so maybe we could do that at least. Helen Westcott plays Vicki Edwards, performing from the age of two. Westcott was the daughter of a singer and a Warner Brothers studio actor. She initially appeared on vaudeville with her mother, and then in 1935, at the age of seven, she began a nine-year run in a stage production of The Drunkard out in Los Angeles. She first appeared on film at the age of four, doing short films, and then at five, landed her first feature, 1934's Thunder Over Texas. In addition to Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, her adult career also included a co-starring role in 1950's The Gunfighter opposite Gregory Peck. In the late 50s, she transitioned to television, appearing on Perry Mason, Bonanza, The Twilight Zone, and Wanted, Dead or Alive. Cool. Was she ever on Batman? We're getting there. Reginald Denny plays the inspector. He has no name other than inspector. But uh, okay, so this guy did it all. I was so impressed. I, I had to like whittle down his his life story here, but there's a lot of stuff in here uh, if you ever want to research him. Like Helen Westcott, he came from a theatrical family, began performing at a young age. He was born in England in 1891, and he was the son of actor and opera singer W.H. Denny. He performed on stage between the ages of 7 and 12. At the age of 16, he ran away from school to train as a pugilist, and then around 20 years old, he joined the Bandman Opera Company as a bar- Baritone and toured India and Far East Asia. Hmm. While he had made some short film appearances up to this point, he formally made his film debut in 1915 with the World Film Company, where he made films in the U.S. and the U.K. until the 1960s. He appeared alongside John Barrymore in a 1920 Broadway production of Henry III. The two became great friends and starred in several films together, including Sherlock Holmes in 1922, Hamlet in 33, and Romeo and Juliet in 36. He also appeared with Catherine Hepburn in Little minister, Greta Garbo and Anna Karenina, and also had a role in Hitchcock's Rebecca. His last role, Mike, was in the 1966 Batman film as Commodore Schmidlap. That is amazing. Oh my God, this is the best episode ever. Like, I thought it was crazy enough that he's in a a movie from 1927 called Fast and Furious, and there is a podcast on the network, Too Fast, Too Forever, which watches the Fast and Furious movies forever. Um, I thought that was a coincidence enough. He's in... uh, my mom's favorite Western, Cat Ballou. I thought that was a coincidence enough. Cat Ballou with Jane Fonda and Lee Marvin. But to tell me he is actually the kidnapped Commodore Schmidlap on 
the fucking submarine. That is the greatest news ever. I don't have any more Batman connections, though. That's it. I think two is the most we've had in a single episode, though. It's been a while, too. Like, we are good for a minute now, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not done. That's only half of what I have for him. So unrelated to his acting, but I still found it really fascinating. Denny was a very accomplished pilot as well, serving with the Royal Air Force in the First World War. In the 20s, he performed as a stunt pilot with the 13 Black Cats and even loaned his World War I Sopwith Snipe biplane to Howard Hughes to be used in hell. Angels. What the hell? Dude, this, this is amazing. Where's the book? Where's the movie on this guy? <laughs> I know, I know. In the 30s, he formed Reginald Denny Industries and opened a model plane shop. And in 1935, he developed a remote-controlled radio plane for military use. And in 1939, won the first military U.S. Air Corps contract for their radio-controlled target drone. This has nothing to do with his acting, but like this is insane. I love it. By 1940, they had made nearly 15,000 drones for the U.S. Army during World War II, all from their radio plane plant at the Van Nuys Airport in Los Angeles. Whoa. The guy created the drone? Basically. And the last bit of information I've got here is not really so much related to him as it is with the radio plane plant. So it was at this factory that in 1945, Army photographer David Conover saw a young woman assembler named Norma Jean Doherty, who he thought had potential as a model. She was photographed at the plant, which led to a screen test, and soon she changed her name to Marilyn Monroe, and that's all she wrote. I, I, I think the episode's done, folks. We gotta. I need to. <laughs> I need to like take all this in for a minute and wrap my head around it. That is crazy. That's amazing. Wow, what a what a cast. <laughs> right. I mean, just so much about his life was so fascinating to me. And at the risk of extending this episode longer right, than it right. needs to be, I, I just felt like I needed to mention it because I feel like you would be totally into it. I hope our listeners are. So if not, really, really sorry. So moving on, we've got John Dierks as Batley. Dierks was an economist. This guy also very interesting, not not quite with the same breadth of uh, mm-hmm. Reginald Denny, but still pretty cool. So Dierks was an economist working for the U.S. Department of State before joining the Red Cross in 1941 and serving in Britain during World War II. It was there that he met John Houston who suggested he try Hollywood after the war. Instead, he went to work for the U.S. Treasury Department, which sent him to Hollywood anyway, to work as a technical advisor on the film To the Ends of the Earth. That same year, Orson Welles cast him as Ross in his version of Macbeth, and then again in Touch of Evil in 1958. Listeners may also recognize him as Dr. Chapman in 1951's The Thing from Another World. Yes. Six foot, six inches tall. He was best known as a character actor, often appearing in science fiction, action, western, and horror films often playing villains and soldiers. And what blows my mind is that he isn't Frankenstein. <laughs> like, what? He reminded me of Jaws from James Bond. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Lurch or something like that. Like, he is, he's a tall boy and a very imposing <laughs> presence. And, and yeah, should have should have just, like, thrown the makeup on him at one point. Like, more of it. Very cool presence. One fun fact about the movie that I thought was interesting is that this movie received an X rating in the UK because of all the scenes with Mr. Hyde. But then apparently they also showed it on like kids programming later. So So not exactly a video nasty. 
No, <laughs> maybe for like a hot second, you know, a video nasty of its day. I didn't find any information about them having to cut down any of the violence. Not that there's a ton, but yeah. So I don't, I don't really know why I got the X rating. Maybe it just because Hyde is so frightening. But so Dan, just real quick before we move on, because like I've just, you know, I've been clicking as we've been talking and looking at other actors and stuff. And um, there's an actor in this movie named Gil Perkins. He plays a character named Oscar. I'm not sure who that is or where he appears. But the picture of him in the Google search is of Adam West holding onto his back as he's dressed some <laughs> pirate flying through the air on a giant umbrella that no doubt belongs to the penguin from the film Batman the Movie. So we have possibly yet a third Batman connection in a single episode. Like we are well good for a while. And I, I'm, I'm a little annoyed at this point. <laughs> Like this, is <laughs> this is crazy. Only you would find that guy and know that he was in Batman the movie. He says he's an Australian film and television actor and plays Bluebeard in Batman. So there you go. Fantastic. Oh, it looks like he did the TV series and the movie. Excellent. He must be one of Penguin's henchmen. So I love it. Amazing. Let's get into the movie. All right. So we open with a pretty uninspired opening credits. We started with full-blown animated credits, and then we moved to just a still cartoon credits. And now with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, just a still photo of Big Ben on the river. Yeah. Foggy night. And this was my first hint that this is uh, going to be a little different. You know, I was like, oh, if we're not going to start with cartoons, I think that's as much as I love them. I think that's a good sign. Yes, definitely. It, like, And it takes a while to get to Abbott and Costello, right? The movie doesn't just start with them, which I also liked. If I didn't know better, I would think that this was like another classic horror movie. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was saying in the opening, Dan, is that like, I don't think Universal wanted Abbott and Costello in this movie. And put them in here as little as possible, focused mostly um, as best they could on the true horror stuff that they were kind of originally known for. Yeah. And they got the right guy to shoot it too. George Robinson was the DP on this one. Usually when we're really enamored of the look of a movie, it's George Robinson. And of course it's him here as well. Very good. It just looks really, really nice. I don't know about the transfer you have. Mine looked like very grainy. Like it, it sort of reminded me of the look of Dracula's daughter. Yeah, you know, I thought that too. I, one of my first notes was this is shot way differently, or at least it looks way different because it looked like it was almost shot on old film stock or something. It just didn't seem to be as crisp. And I kind of think it works for it. Yeah, I don't mean for that just to be a negative. I do think it benefits the mood overall because like, I, I suddenly forget that the movie I'm watching was made in 1953, right? It feels like it was something that was made in 1933. Right. Just overall benefits the tone of this opening sequence. We've got foggy streets, heavy shadows. Uh, a, a man is walking down the dark streets of London being pursued by a man in a cape and a top hat. And we see the first murderer just in the opening seconds of this movie. And it's relative tame by by murder scenes that we've seen before as far as throttlings go it might not be that vicious however i was shocked that the opening of this movie is a murder like this like it opens right away wasting no time like shot out of a gun right away like i love that about it so i think the implication hit like the implied violence kind of hit 
right? I got like that Spielberg moment or whatever, where it was like, holy shit, I, did, did this movie just start with a death? Even though I didn't see it, I felt it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think this is the first death in an Abbott and Costello monster movie. Nice, nice. I don't think anybody dies in Frankenstein. I don't think anybody dies in Invisible Man. Well, we don't see anybody die, right? Like, the guy's dead before the movie starts, the manager. Right? Yeah. But that's more of a, a mystery than a horror movie. So, yeah, I think this is the first on-screen murder that we see in an Abbott and Costello comedy. So, yeah, right away, they're not screwing around. This is going to be an entirely different type of movie, which has me excited already. And then, of course, as Hyde slinks off into the shadows, we see his hairy hand peek out of the cape there. As he disappears, we are introduced to our main protagonist, Bruce Adams, who's our, our newspaper man. He strolls out of a, a local tavern and bears witness to the body on the ground there and discovers that he is a local doctor. He's a very prominent doctor in the area, Dr. Stephen J. Poole, uh, and a known associate of Dr. Henry Jekyll. And I'm going to say, like, uh, it takes me a while to warm up to Bruce as a character. Like, the actor's handsome enough and everything, but he's very pushy. He uh, He's very opinionated. And I don't know. I'm just not warming up to him that easily. However, by the end, I do like him. He's a great reporter and he kicks ass by the end of this. There's one line of dialogue that really sours me on Bruce. I, I have to sort of pretend it doesn't exist so that I can like him for the rest of the movie. And we're, we're coming up on that because the next sequence is this like a newspaper headline montage about Dr. Stephen J. Poole murdered, fellow of the Royal College of Physicians killed in Hyde Park. And then if you pause to the left of that first headline, suffrage movement takes hold. So that gives us a date, right? We know what time period we're talking about. Another Hyde Park murder, well-known doctor, victim of monster, monster strikes again, prominent physician slain, all sorts of headlines like this. So the following scene, Bruce is sitting at a park bench in Hyde Park. He thinks he sees another body, right? He sees some legs poking out from behind a bush, but the joke is that it's uh, just a vagrant, right? A homeless man. Yeah, that's very James Wales to me. I love that bit. Well, actually, no, we don't know that he's homeless. He says he has a wife, presumably a home. Maybe he was out drinking too late and passed out in the park. Who knows? But anyway, while that whole situation is going down, on the other part of the park is a women's suffrage rally. Yeah. And we get our casual misogyny for the day. So this was in incredibly crazy like i i was taken so off guard by this in weird ways like i like that it's you know the suffrage movement right like it's interesting yeah. to show them drawing attention to like this is what's going on this is the the social sort of discord right so you have the women standing up for themselves and then you have these chauvinist men being like you know doing the whole you belong in the kitchen routine and like right, right. women places here and there what i wasn't expecting was for this whole scene to turn into a huge brawl women aren't taking any of this shit and they start like beating on the guys and like the cops have to get involved and it becomes like a rumble this movie is just out of control from the start yeah it was the most pleasant surprise because i was so put off by the misogyny like i'm not surprised by it but it was disappointing to have this scene end in like a barroom brawl where the women are winning was a good choice right i sort of turned around on that but at the same time bruce openly admits that he's not really for the idea of women being allowed the right to vote which is unfortunate i think what they were trying to do poorly was 
start him in one place and end him in another, right? Like show by the end that he is a chivalrous man and he does think women should have the right to vote, right? Or could this be like a reporter tactic where he just sort of agrees with whoever he's speaking to to get trust and maybe get more information? Now, the issue with all of this is they drop this. They do. They pretty much drop him for the most part reporting and stuff and it's just going to be them falling in love for the rest of the movie behind the back of Dr. Jekyll, which happens. The love triangle, it's bad. It's it's the zombie love triangle, Dan. It never dies. Like, you're right. They never really revisit the suffragette angle, right? And, and I feel like it was a missed opportunity because what if Hyde was, like, killing these women? And it was sort of almost like a Jack the Ripper type deal where it's just women yeah. being killed. They're all the suffragettes. Okay, so now maybe the killer is a guy who's got an axe to grind against these women who want the right to vote. I think that would be way more interesting than what we get, which is Dr. Jekyll, who is jealous of Bruce and... And decides he's going to kill him. Yeah, it lends itself more to the themes of Jekyll and Hyde to continue the debate between men and women. Women can do what a man can do equal. You know what I'm saying? Like that whole yeah, argument yeah, yeah. feels like it's in inside of like the, the DNA of Jekyll and Hyde because like Dr. Jekyll basically unlocks the ultimate incel. Sure. He just unlocks like the ultimate asshole, worst version of what a guy is. And so, you know, to sort of balance that with... Uh, equal rights and all this would have been a fun way to go but i keep forgetting that this is an abbott and costello movie yeah well i don't see any reason why they couldn't exist within the framework of a story like this as far as i'm concerned it could totally happen but maybe the themes are a little too heavy for all the slapstick this is probably the stuff they wanted to tackle in the dark universe that they never got <laughs> i love that this is how we get our introduction to our abbott and costello characters right they are policemen who come running into the bar fight well i say it's a bar fight it's out in the park but I mean, it very much plays like a barroom brawl. We get Abbott and Costello immediately thrown into physical comedy, which they're perfect at. Some of the stunt work here is great. Bud and Lou taking some of their own bumps on camera, but of course, a lot of stunt work as well. Some really great sequences here. Yeah, yeah. I like them flipping over the bench and falling into the dirt and like getting stuck in the hole and everything. But I got to admit, man, when they first came running out, I was like, wait a minute, wait, what? Like, how are they American bobbies? Like, I was so confused i was like is this gonna be the joke kind of is for the whole movie is the idea that like they're these foreign exchange policemen and because of like this brawl they're gonna lose their badge i guess and have to go out and capture the monster to like get into like the good graces of yes. uh, the general public again now's as good a time as any to address this there's a single line of dialogue that occurs in maybe not the next scene but the following where we learn that these two characters are american policemen who have come to london to learn a new style of policing it's like a work exchange sort of program so that explains why bud and lou have no accents but vicky and Bruce have no such explanation. They just have American accents. They're living in England. There's no explanation as to why they're speaking with American accents. They should be English characters. We don't get any explanation whatsoever. This might sound crazy, but like, I didn't even notice. <laughs> like, I didn't even realize. He, at least he should have had a British accent. She makes a little more sense because she's like a showgirl, which is even crazier. Is like, she's a suffragette showgirl. I love it. It's just madness. But like, I can understand her like on tour. She's on tour maybe, right? Sure, so like, yes. she's from America. But like, yeah, there's no explanation to him either. There's not even like a drop line. If it wasn't for our supporting cast, we would have no indication that we were in England in terms of the acting anyway. Because Karloff barely has a accent, you know? he's He's got a very distinguished 
lisp you know like he's a very identifiable speech pattern i think i love the yes. way he talks, but like it's not a british accent by no means as far as like you would think all right so we see everybody in jail and the, the gag that when the, when the camera pulls back is that the women are in one cell and slim and tubby are in the other cell they're all arrested but all the women get bailed out and so does bruce adams he doesn't want to get bailed out because he wants to stay in jail and talk to Vicky and keep interviewing her. Right, yeah. He says he has the money for his own bail. But we learn that the man responsible for releasing all these women is Henry Jekyll. And we get sort of an idea of the relationship that's going on here. So Vicky was raised by Dr. Jekyll. And he's kind of got feelings for her, which is really weird. Okay, no, kind of. He's in love. You know, at first I was like, all right, I understand like if there's some kind of David Copperfield thing going on where maybe he's like a distant relative or a benefactor or some kind of thing and he's taking care of her, fine. But the fact that he's got like the hots for basically his daughter is nuts. And like, he'll even come out and say later, ever since you were a little child, I've been in love. Right. I've only been waiting for you to grow up so that we could like be together. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure like how that relationship formed, but he has been her legal guardian for some time. I'll tell you how I think it formed. He murdered her parents so that he could raise her on his own. It's Uh, like a sick Lolita thing going on. Dear God, I'm afraid you might be right. Even more of a horror film. Yeah, I want to move past this as quickly as I can. So that relationship gets established in this scene. There's a little bit of awkwardness as, you know, Vicky has to get to the theater and then Bruce also wants to spend more time with her. Jekyll wanted to like go for a ride around the city and what ends up happening is he takes in his carriage with his driver offers to take Vicky on a short ride to the theater. Bruce kind of the opportunist recognizes a way that he can spend more time with Vicky. So he sort of invites himself along much to the chagrin of Dr. Jekyll and the three take a ride around London. Yeah, this was a pretty interesting scene. You know, three is definitely a crowd here. We're establishing the triangle. I like, well, they didn't like, but like Bruce is a sneaky guy where he's like, oh, I have a friend that lives right next to you. Can I get a ride, Dr. Jekyll? And he's like, oh, of course. And then when they get there, he's like, ah, you know, actually, I think I'm going to go see my other friend who lives next to the theater where Vicky's going. And Dr. Dr. Jekyll like can read between the lines. Yes. He gives one of the best line readings in the entire movie where he says, I forget the driver's name, but he's like, I'm sure he could drive you all over London to visit all of your friends. Mm, Yeah. Such venom. So in between all of that, this is the scene where the inspector sort of relieves Slim and Tubby of duty. He pulls off all of their badges and things off of their uniforms, throws them in the garbage. And that's that for them. Yeah. That was a really quick little short scene too, where they get their badges removed and kicked out of the program and stuff like that. I was like, well, that was a very quick little short moment, but okay, no joke. It's a weird cut. They sort of cut up this scene with Jekyll and Vicky and everybody to check in with Abbott and Costello here. So Yeah, because then we go back to like the car ride and stuff, right? Right, and that's where we get the thesis of Dr. Jekyll and his work and everything that he's sort of working towards. Like, so that's one of the things that I've always been a little bit fuzzy on and as to what his experiments are about, like why he's doing it. In this particular version, he is convinced every person has a good side and an evil side. And I guess what he's trying to do is isolate the evil side so that it can be forever subdued. That's what I got from it. So that ultimately there could be complete 
peace on earth. If no one was able to access their evil side, everybody would be happy and okay. Yeah. You know, the reason why I did the quote from Full Metal Jacket in the in my intro was because like I got a very heavy sort of duality of man kind of study that he was going for, right? Where he is like, if I could prove that there's two sides to us definitely, then I can kind of quell the one and we can be our ultimate selves. Like we'll all be happy when we don't have to give in to our animal instincts anymore. And yeah, again very similar to sort of what Dr. Banner was studying in at least the TV show. When he didn't get hit with a gamma bomb in the show, he was studying how people kind of get these intense feats of superhuman strength when someone they love is in mortal danger. So like when a mother can lift a car to get it off their child and things like that. And so like he was into the whole idea too of like, if we could isolate this and control it, then we could be like better humans, you know? Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Jack in modern days kind of comes across a bit like a Nazi, <laughs> you know? The perfect man with science and potions and like it will be under control and we will be our apex and all this. It's like, yeah. This version of Jekyll and Hyde definitely Definitely. It might be the earliest version of the characters where like the Hulk comparison is most apt, you know, like he's literally unleashing Hyde to go commit acts of murder because he himself is pissed off about something, right? It's like, it's no different yeah. from Banner as, as an Avenger saying, oh, there's a threat. We need to turn into the Hulk to go stop the threat. Similarly as well, I feel like this is the first Mr. Hyde that isn't a smooth talking, suave ass pin too you know like generally like he's the man on the street and like sure he looks crazy and stuff but like he's always been like a smooth talking like guy who could get things done kind of character i feel or at least you know putting on the airs of being more suave and cool and in this he's just a beast yeah he is just like a werewolf almost yeah i think i think about not a great movie but in the league of extraordinary gentlemen or even in van helsing which i hope to get to there's a mr hyde in that movie they're both big hulking characters but they are not unintelligible they are still well spoken Hyde he might look grotesque but he's always got that quality about him where he, yeah. he's smart it's way more of like a split personality someone that's got two personalities that like one retreats and the other emerges and they're like completely different people in oneself so this isn't doing that this is Jekyll weaponizing Hyde for his own gain this is maybe a problem I have with the characterization of Jekyll yes he's well respected around town like they're we're gonna get into that because whenever the accusations are sort of directed towards him everybody else is saying what Dr. Jekyll, like, he wouldn't do that. But the Jekyll we see is a guy who is jealous, vindictive, angry. Like, he he can't get over mm -hmm. how much he hates Bruce. He's a liar. Like, we outright yeah. see him lying to people. Like, it's wild. It's a strange characterization because if Jekyll is the good side and, and Hyde is the evil side, this character has no good side as far as I'm right. concerned. He's just evil no matter what. Yeah, he goes from bad to worse. Yes. Isn't the character, but, you know, it still works because the premise, the basis of just, you know, transforming from one man to another or one person to another is so interesting. Like, it still works on this level. I agree. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the change is so dramatic. I mean, we go from well-spoken 
token Boris Karloff to an animalistic monster, right? So because the contrast is so sharp, it still works. Yeah, he ends up looking again, like a bit like Igor, a bit like the guy from Dracula's Daughter. Like a, He's kind of a monkey man when you get down to it, which I, I like that. I don't know why Universal keeps going back to that kind of play on that look, but I'm down. Yeah, I, I was totally okay with the look of Hyde here. It served the purpose for this particular movie. So we pretty much discussed everything that happens in this next scene. Jekyll talking about how much he hates Bruce. I mean, he's, he's kind of going back and forth about whether or not to retire this experiment, but no, he's got to take care of Bruce and then he'll get Vicky and everything will be fine. But we get introduced to Batley in this scene. Yeah, but before though, the journey to Batley is awesome because Dr. Jekyll goes into his mansion. He goes into his study. He has like a secret Batcave entrance himself. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like the Batcave. He goes down and he's got the staircase area, which is cool. And then he's mm-hmm. got the lab zone, which is awesome. Yeah, he's got all of his animals in there you know he's an animal tester like all these mad scientists we get like sort of uh, hinted it here and i didn't exactly catch it but later we get a good glimpse of it he's been messing with these animals in very peculiar ways yeah later on there's a line of dialogue where we find out he like gave canine characteristics to a rabbit right like the rabbit is now acting like a dog and it's barking and things like that and like maybe now the cat is a bird or something so like or like the bird will meow it's weird weird stuff like that that is so sort of off on the side this is just all such a cool idea to work into the premise more but it's just like that's a cool thing it's just world building like he's just he's got other stuff going on you know (laughs) like it's not just the one potion yeah no it was pretty solid mise-en-scene there just all kinds of stuff in that frame if you're looking for it which i think is really cool what did you think of the transformation because in that scene we also get the first transformation from jekyll to hyde oh that's right he gets the serum out and he he's like talking about how you know he's going to use it tonight in this and i thought it was good actually i like it what they start on the hand right and then once the hand's transformed it pans up to his face and then there's a lot of dissolves you know i feel like there's at least like five or eight or something and so pretty smooth and it does the fun thing i liked i think it works better and better is that the closer they get to the final form the more like their mouth starts moving and by the time you're there the dissolve matches a little bit better so i thought it was cool i give karloff a lot of credit for at least sitting through that if not playing Uh, Mr. Hyde for the rest of the film. I could totally understand. He seems like kind of a frail man at this point. Um, Yeah, I always dig it. You know, I always dig the transformations, but this makeup is pretty terrifying on its own. I was pretty impressed with the way they were able to pull that off without him laying down. A lot of the Lon Chaney transformations, he's on the ground and they had to hold his head still. Here, Karloff just sort of had a sit facing the camera and it's not perfect, but overall, I I thought it was a really solid transformation. I was also jarred by Batley's presence you know I was just like oh he's got sort of like a reverse hunchback like he's not like a short little helper close to the ground he's like really tall and skinny and a Frankenstein monster like he you know like he kind of has his own big muscle very cool was not expecting that yeah he almost looks like Rondo Hatton he was like a big brutish character actor appeared in a lot of universal horror 
Yeah, great call. He's got a very distinguishable face, big features, like big nose, long chin, huge ears. Like, looks yep. like a, no offense to the guy, but looks like a Halloween mask in the best ways. 100%. Now with Hyde out on the loose, we check in at the Jubilee Music Hall. Vicky's there as a showgirl with a whole dancing troupe. She sings a song. It's all very nice. Couldn't believe we got a musical number. It's the second one of the movie because she has a whole song at the suffragette rally. Oh, that's right. Uh, do you think it's because like popularity and musicals was on the rise or something like that? Because that's a lot of the 50s. It's just Hollywood is going to crank out musicals like No Tomorrow. The way I see it, Abbott and Costello came from vaudeville and people coming to see an Abbott and Costello movie would be interested in a sort of variety of entertainment. Not just horror, but you know, we've got a couple songs in here got comedy so in a way this movie it has a little bit of everything for everybody you know what i mean that's a very good point dan because like vicky is literally working at a vaudeville variety show you know and like when she goes off stage we're gonna get a little bit of the next act um you know it's gonna set up something for later but it's also just like hey check this out like it's a weird song and dance thing going on that you wouldn't normally see anywhere else and i was like wow the movie is just like turned into a a show now. And what a perfect location for this whole sequence. So this is one of the big sort of comedy sequences in the movie. Like you could break this movie down into like maybe four or five big set pieces, right? This is one of the big ones. So after Vicky's performance, Bruce is there backstage and he's going to watch her next act, whatever it is she's got going on. While that's happening inside, Hyde is outside trying to get in. Bruce kisses Vicky and Hyde is like, they cut to a shot of him like outside the window, like growling. (laughs) Yes. As he climbs the drain pipe, Slim and Tubby come walking down the alleyway there's there's another great character actor they encounter like when they're looking for the monster right and this guy asks for a light it's another guy with like a really weird face just perfect for a horror movie love that gag there but as they turn the corner they see what they think is a burglar climbing up the drain pipe not realizing that it's a monster Yeah, and I love how they get into the theater. They, like, go to the back entrance, and the bouncer's there, and he's like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're the song and dance guys for tonight. And he's like, oh, yeah, prove it. And then Lou Costello does, like, that little skip dance of his. And I was just dying. I was like, that's perfect how they work that into this. And that's the only time you really does that and I thought that was like that was good good writing good use of their abilities there for that oh absolutely so yeah there's a lot of stuff going on here try to cover it in as much detail as we can there's a lot of costumes in this variety show that could be mistaken for monsters Right, there's that one sort of dragon dance act that comes on after Vicky. And so that head is going to come into play because it kind of looks like a monster head. And Slim and Tubby are backstage looking for the burglar and the monster. or They're just trying to get their jobs back, so they want to capture someone. There's just like a lot of hijinks backstage running into the monster and not. And thinking that uh, Tubby's like, oh, I caught the monster. But it was really just like a guy wearing the dragon mask. Slim talking to the guy in the dragon dragon mask taking it off and it's the monster yeah it's a lot of antics backstage running around it plays well enough like you know i don't feel like this is tired by the end of it i feel like it it doesn't outstay its welcome like and i kind of like this concept of like we're gonna just hang in this location for a long time you know and we're just gonna sit here and do everything we can backstage at the variety show 
And I think it's because there's a variety of bits going on all within this sequence. It's not like they're playing the same bit. I mean, there's a little bit of, I think of that scene in um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein when Costello is in Larry Talbot's hotel room and like he almost gets attacked by the Wolfman like a couple different times, but he doesn't realize it. There's a lot of that sprinkled throughout this sequence mixed in with some straight up slapstick. I know Bud Abbott takes a, a couple hits to the head first with a chair and then with with a club you know which i thought was really cool seeing bud abbott take the hits usually we see lou costello getting smacked around this time it's abbott so that was cool there's a fun mirror gag where tubby sees hide in the mirror there's a bit of a cry wolf moment right where i mentioned that he thinks he cut the monster but it's just the guy with the monster head on there is that moment again where like mr hyde is creeping behind Costello and he can't notice him and I'm kind of done with that at this point so they didn't go on too long but it's almost like they're running through sort of greatest hits instead of coming up newer stuff the one thing I felt that there was just maybe a lot of business with that curtain closet yes that went on maybe just a little too much and I wasn't quite buying it however like I think that it's pretty high scores from me for this entire sequence gags and everything yeah, I think we're nitpicking, like because we have seen a lot of this sort of thing before. But like we've said, it does play really well, and I think a lot of that has to do with just them mixing it up from beat to beat. It's it's always a different thing. I gotta say, I mentioned Slim getting hit with a chair and then hit with a club, like almost back to back. Right? I love Lou Costello reacting to his mistake both times and then just crying. I love that the choice was to have him break down into tears. It's just so funny to me that might have been my favorite Lou Costello contribution to this particular sequence. He's got a great face later on. I'll, I'll point out when no one believes him, but that works so well because that moment was practically set up from the beginning of the sequence. You know, you find him, you hit him with this and that. And of course, by the end, they end up, one of them ends up knocking out the other. So I yeah. think comedically, like it, it hits all the right notes and then it ends with like, literally the punchline yeah and and another thing that i like in this sequence that you know i I complained about this in invisible man but abbott is still like he doesn't have all the information right i think the dynamic works best when one of them has the information and the other one doesn't and so the other one's always constantly trying to keep up and it's not until about halfway through this movie that he sees that his friend is now changed and so he knows there's truth to whatever theories he's had about whatever dr jekyll's been doing in the laboratory like there's yeah confirmed it takes time to get there though so this scene really plays out because of that dynamic this almost feels in ways more like a whodunit or a mystery than the last movie you know and they use like deductive reasoning later to put everything together to be like this happened to you this happened to him it couldn't not be the same guy you know like we just have to prove it it is so funny like they don't leap to logic like they actually follow these steps later and come to the logical conclusion and it's just like wow i did not expect that from an Abbott and costello movie to be quite honest with you yeah that's another good point like i feel like they were more idiots in invisible man than they are here and then they were in um frankenstein in frankenstein they weren't idiots it's just that one of them knew the monsters were real and the other one didn't right i think that's a big factor for their successful comedy is that if they're idiots then doesn't play as funny to me to have them be competent i mean that some of the comedy here is a little bit silly and and it's definitely heavy slapstick but i don't think that they're complete morons right i think they, they need to have right. some level of intelligence so that's why 
these sequences work so well for me. I think that's why the movie's working better for me also is because it's treating everything with dignity. You know what I'm saying in a sense? Like it's like it all matters the same, like because horror, comedy, whatever, we take it all seriously, even if we're going to mash up the genres. Like, you know, this might not, again, be the most successful version of this, but they're doing it, I think, the right way. Like this is better than what we would have gotten if they tried to just throw Jekyll and Hyde into an Abbott and Costello film. That takes me to the next sequence, which this is a Jekyll and Hyde scene with Abbott and Costello involved. It's the chase across the rooftop, which I feel like every Jekyll and Hyde movie has to have some chase across the roof. Every version I've seen has one of those. Yeah. And I also like how, doesn't Bruce also see? Yep. Yeah. We have like another witness. We have someone else like on our side now and they all take off. Oh man, I just realized, Dan, another Batman connection. We have a character named Bruce. But to keep it going, yeah, they chase Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. They chase him across, like, lots of rooftops. Like, this was kind of the matrix for its day right. jumping across roofs and all that kind of shit yeah you're right bruce is with them kind of breeze through the theater scene but by the end of that as hyde is making his escape all three of them see hyde leave and so bruce doesn't need to be convinced that hyde exists from this point on it's going to be about who hyde is like they couldn't possibly be the same person as dr jekyll right that's ridiculous no no he's he's at such high standings in the community. Like, he's such a nice guy. Tubby has some credibility here, right? Like, he doesn't need to prove that a monster exists, which is cool. So I love this rooftop chase sequence. There's really only one beat in it that sort of undermines it, which I don't even really mind. It's when he falls between the buildings and then gets caught in the long underwear hanging from the laundry line. It's okay. I thought it was a very interesting shot. Like, it's from sort of is, bird's yeah. eye view. I thought for yeah. sure we'd just get like a flat shot of him hanging, but we don't. We never get that. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Must have been by necessity or something. You know, I I was expecting way worse and way more of just like rooftop tomfoolery. The chase ends up at a wax museum. I want to get this out of the way right now that there are two wax figures. One is the Frankenstein monster and one is Dracula. And if it's not Dracula, it is definitely the likeness of Bela Lugosi. So I love that little nod to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein there. This whole idea, like, didn't they do this in Meet Frankenstein where like they deliver the boxes to what turns out to sort of yeah so that was in a in a like a house of horrors not necessarily a wax museum okay so similar but i i was like good callback like they're doing it again i think they do it better here like this is a great idea for a set piece because by now in the real world uh you know i'm sure you would go and go to one of these like these would be places you know like Mm -hmm. a madame toes but like for you know famous murderers throughout history and like genghis khan and shit like that are in there and i could just tell what's coming at some point you know mr hyde is going to pretend to be an exhibit or something like that which he doesn't do he just hides behind a curtain that blew my mind i was like for sure that's the punchline right like it's the only reason we're in here is so that like people are going to bust in and he's going to freeze and they're going to pretend he's an exhibit. But no, they do that with a police officer. Tubby's like, did you see the monster? Did you see where he went? And he's like, eh, why aren't you talking? What's wrong with you? Yeah, so they do pull that gag, just not with Hyde. There's a bunch of gags here involving a severed head that Costello throws in the air. It lands on a cat that wanders across the floor. Dude, we mentioned the movie thing from another world earlier because there's an actor from that this reminds me of John Carpenter's thing of like <laughs> the 
dead walking across the floor. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> you got to be fucking kidding. I was like, oh, my God, that's so creepy. It worked even back then. That gag was pretty fun. Of course, the uh, live electrical wires coming down from the ceiling animate the Frankenstein monster for some reason. Yeah, explain that to me. It makes zero sense, but I love it anyway. It's those kinds of things that are so sort of few and far between in this version, right, that were everywhere in the last movie that I give this movie these moments more freely than I did the last one because there's less of them. You want to pretend that that's not a wax statue and maybe it's like some kind of animatronic fine uh, i'll buy the gag for now oh, yeah i love costello in the iron maiden thing oh right speaking of the live figures right or the the animated figures some of these wax figures are actually just human beings oh they gotta be yeah there's a couple of them i noticed like are standing very still but if you look closely they kind of sway a little bit like you can tell that they're just people standing in place i guess they couldn't afford wax figures you don't need to get wax figures like get mannequins like just get mannequins i don't know like the cowboy when he gets the the lasso off the cowboy you can tell that guy is a, a real man yeah Certainly. I love the whole concept of this. So It ultimately culminates in the capture of Mr. Hyde. Tubby, of all people, manages to imprison him in this jail cell. He does it like fair and square, too. You know, like he actually tricked them. He's like, it's like good for him. Oh, no, it's not going to be him when they show him <laughs> everyone else. It's going to he's going to change back. Yeah, unfortunately, it was all for naught, because as soon as he goes to get help, Hyde changes back into Dr. Jekyll. So so when the inspector arrives and, and Slim and everybody else, nobody believes him. Like I said, he couldn't possibly be Hyde, right? He can't be two people. Yeah. And for the next two or three scenes, Dan, is when I pay attention to Tubby's face because he's got this look on his face. It's like, I can't believe you don't believe me. Like, I know what I saw and they're going to keep saying things. And he kind of doesn't look exactly at the camera, but he's got this look I've never seen in any of the movies before of just like so mad and so like, upset that no one believes it absolutely yeah i'm watching his face right now and it, you can tell it's it's more frustrated than we've ever seen him that's it lou costello knows that moment you know a frustration of like not getting the credit or whatever it is and he's using it for this scene does he break the fourth wall i can't remember if he does, it happens like once and it's super quick. I think he might just sort of give like a quick look up at one point while he's looking around a room or something, but I never wrote it down in my notes. So it's yeah. not the degree of it's like, you know, a slow turn and then like a wink, you know? Yeah, I, I didn't notice it myself, but I think him playing annoyed and kind of frustrated serves the character well because we're so used to him being too afraid to do anything from Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein that now in this movie, his character character feels motivated to start looking around for things. He's not the scaredy cat that we are so used to. In the next scene, Dr. Jekyll invites both of them back to his home because they were policemen and he is feeling like he could use some protection. He wants them to stay over at his house. He's going to pay them five pounds just to keep an eye on things and make sure that he's okay and safe. And throughout this whole sequence, I mean, Tubby is really curious about this house. He takes risks that Wilbur 
never would have. I mean, these guys just like in other people's homes with just, you know, walking around acting like they own the place, you know, they just are not scared to snoop or any of that kind of stuff. Like, I really enjoyed the scene in the bedroom where it's just Abbott and Costello and Karloff. You get like real acting, you know, I don't know how else to explain it, but like, it doesn't feel like parody. It doesn't feel like comedy or anything. It just feels like I'm in a Universal Monster movie again. Like, it has so many of these moments that remind me of the early movies we watched that it's like, not that I don't want Abbott and Costello to be here, but I just wish that Universal was able to make one before putting them in it because they do put their own spin on it and it's fun to watch. 100%. I forget what his motivation is for having the the policeman at his home. Is it just so he can go back out and kill Bruce without fear that they'll stop him? I think it's that and he wants to keep his eye on at least Tubby because Tubby knows. He knows, yeah. I think he even says to Lurch or Batley sorry that (laughs) um, he's like we're not going to kill the Tubby one we're going to like experiment on it. Like I feel like he's like, he goes we could use him for stuff so don't kill him but I'm still going to kill Bruce tonight. Right, they can't let him go he knows too much. Yeah, but the way he put it where it was like I think we could use him for like experiment experiments and things it's like oh man that's like a fate worse than death yeah considering what we know with all those animals which we're about to see so as slim is sleeping tubby decides to go back out into the house and explore around a bit there's a fun sequence with batley where he is walking in step right behind him yeah that's the wolfman gag i thought that that was done earlier but that might have even been done earlier at the variety show with mr hyde as well so yeah, it's slightly different, mostly because Batley isn't about to pounce on him. He's just kind of like following him through the house. But when Tubby turns around and sees him and we get that great shot, that low angle shot of his face, we miss out on what probably could have been a great stunt as Tubby falls down the stairs. It's a pretty lengthy sound effect. We only get to stare at Batley's reaction. It's just a long reaction shot with the sound effect of Tubby falling. So I'm like, I'm wondering why the stunt wasn't in there. I feel like it would have played better if we could see it, the whole thing play out. I'm wondering if it was just for like the comedic effect was seeing no reaction on Batley's face of a man <laughs> on several flights of stairs. Maybe one of my favorite gags is when Tubby gets up and runs to a door, opens it up, and it is the cutest little bulldog licking his chops and they 80 yard some ferocious dog noises over it. Tubby, you know, slams the door shut and runs in the opposite direction. I loved just that quick gag yeah that was very sort of irreverent like i did not expect that type of humor that felt like a simpsons gag or something from mad magazine i wish there's actually a little bit more of those kinds of beats throughout those are fun and they relate to abbott costello and they don't really take up a lot of time to set up it's just like open a door or something weird shut the door yep yep literally like two seconds Tubby does find Dr. Jekyll's laboratory. He finds the rabbit that behaves like a dog. He finds a dog that meows like a cat, among other things. A monkey that moves like a cow. That was crazy. So he's definitely experimenting with animals in there, as we've established. There's a great lab set I really love, like we've talked about before, great mise-en-scene. So in all of the commotion, Dr. Jekyll wakes up and Slim wakes up and they all sort of convalesce down in the, the laboratory. Of course, Dr. Jekyll has an explanation for everything that Tubby has seen. He actually takes him down to the lab, right? And, and explains. Him. He's like, yeah, I've been working on drugs for 15 years. And I'm 
I'm like, are you, you've been on drugs for 15 years? And he goes on to explain, like, I've transferred this dog into a rabbit and all that kind of crap. And before they get into the lab, though, like, Batley is, like, mixing up some kind of weird concoction that he's going to feed to, like, one of the lab rats. And so that gets picked up by Tubby at some point throughout this sequence of the explanation, and he drinks it. Slim picks up the beaker, goes to, like, I guess either pour it out or refill the water, and Tubby takes it out of his hand and drinks it. I see. That's how it plays out. So, yeah, now they're sort of being held in the laboratory while Jekyll and Batley kind of figure out what they're going to do with them. But as soon as Tubby drinks the formula, he starts to feel weird and he finds a back door. And so both of them sort of head out the back door. Yeah, I thought that was kind of odd where it's like Jekyll and Batley leave the room and then Tubby and Slim are just like, hey, what's that over there? And they just leave. They just like walk out of the dungeon. Jekyll comes back in the room and he's like, what? Where'd they go? What the hell happened? Yeah, they were not exactly held all that securely to begin with. Yeah, you don't leave them in the room without Batley. But they get out and immediately head for a pub. And this is where Tubby begins to transform. This is an okay transformation. I mean, it is one of the most cartoony things about this movie. If this movie is going to lose you, this is where it's going to happen. See, this is where the movie finally won me over 100%. That's interesting. We got a very poor sort of tease of this at the end of the last movie where Lou gets a blood transfusion to the Invisible Man and he gets some in his system and he turns invisible for a little while and then he gets that weird backwards running whatever that yes. was but like we get a little hint that like you know maybe one of them one day might turn into one of the monsters in the title or something and so i was crossing my fingers the whole movie that he would become a mr hyde spoiler he's also going to become a mr hyde later at the end of the movie but here he becomes like a rat man and <laughs> This was just so crazy and unexpected and out of left field that like they would actually revisit and use some of like this science that kind of doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. Granted, it's just here for this one little, you know, sequence and it's over and it plays like a skit almost. Yes. But I found it refreshing and the idea that like, okay, now like anything, really anything goes like if he's turning into a mouse, like in the next movie, like one of them might be the mummy, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I like that they took this step. I will say that I like the mask that they put on him because it, it moves. I was surprised at how well the face articulates. It's better than Babes in Toyland, you know, like that March of the Wooden Soldier stuff where it's like real scary. That's not Abbott and Costello. That's Laurel and Hardy. But like yeah. still, it's like the same sort of level. Yeah, so this scene, I don't think I love it as as much as you seem to, but at the same time, so much about this movie works for me that I can look past this scene. It's a very small scene. It doesn't take up too much time, but you're right. It comes out of left field. It is bizarre. And that's why I said, if this movie is going to lose anybody, this is probably the moment where it's going to happen because you're either going to be okay with it or you're not going to be okay with it. For better or worse, this is a scene that exists in this movie. Well, this is like the people in jars in, the Bride of Frankenstein when Henry goes to his former teacher's lab and he's made these tiny little people. So this is sort of like that kind of sequence where it's all very self-contained for this particular moment, but it goes to show that like there's more kind of crazy science and horror stuff 
on the fringe of what we're watching. And I like that. Like, it just makes it feel like a bigger world. I've been on record, I think, in our Bride of Frankenstein episode that, like, that's the one scene in the movie where I'm just like, I don't know. Even to this day, I'm not sure I enjoy that scene because it, it sort of feels different from everything else that's been established in the, the Frankenstein world. And people love that bit of the movie and you know i know a lot of people would say bride of frankenstein is better than frankenstein but for me it's that scene that puts bride beneath the original frankenstein for whatever reason it just there's something about it but that doesn't stop me from loving bride of frankenstein we gushed about how much we love that movie and and so it's the same thing here i just kind of like okay this is a scene in the movie is it gonna make or break the movie for me no is it funny sure but it's over so quickly that like i don't even really mind it it's a bold stroke that's for sure yeah and i guess that's it i guess the stroke is what i'm counting right is that like the attempt the idea the concept and just for me what it says is that if he's going to turn into a mouse he's going to turn into a mr hyde later as well so like i almost felt it as like telegraphing something to come later even if it wasn't 100 percent successful like most things you might be selling me on the mouse scene mike Cool. I feel like I've swayed you on some things on this show, and now you're, you're going to sway me on the mouse scene. I think I'm okay with it. Slim and Tubby immediately go back to the inspector. Now that they both know what's going on, they claim that Dr. Jekyll is using drugs to experiment with animals and possibly turning people into monsters. They are pretty much laughed out of the police station. The inspector is like, get the hell out of my office. They put the pieces together, you yep. know, like Tubby's like, I caught the monster. Like one minute he was a monster. The next minute he was Mr. Jack. And Slim is like, yeah. And not only that, like I physically saw my friend drink something and transform into another thing and turn back. So I know it's possible for something like that to happen. Ergo, Dr. Jekyll drank something and turned into a monster, you know? So armed really only with that information, they go over to Bruce and Vicky as their second resort. The four of them all go over to Dr. Jekyll's home to investigate Slim and Tubby's claims. Some fun slapstick as soon as they enter the house as Costello trips over the rug and then has the door slammed on his face and then of course dr jekyll conveniently has all the answers for all of the accusations he takes everybody back down into his cellar this time he claims he has no laboratory and when they get down there sure enough the laboratory has been replaced with like a wine cellar he lies to vicky's face the like the the woman of the woman he loves and all this stuff and he gives there's like this big speech about malpractice and all this kind of stuff and uh bruce trying to be all big about what's going on in your lab and all this you're lying to us and so he's like all right i'll show you and i admit like i don't know how he swapped the lab for a wine cellar so quickly <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sure batley had something to do with it yeah most definitely i would have loved to see like them pull a lever and the whole room just sort of flipped upside down so bruce and vicky are satisfied with what they've seen they head back upstairs into the library meanwhile tubby and slim go back down into the wine cellar to get a closer look so they find a bottle of moselle and okay so this is maybe the dumbest thing that they do so slim reads it as mousely and assumes that that was the the same stuff that turned Tubby into a mouse. The tried and true gag of, here, drink this. Do you feel anything? Here, drink some more. Do you feel anything? Drink some more. And then by the end of the scene, he's plastered. Yeah, by the end of the scene, it's Slim who looks like a mouse to him. And I just want to say, like, not that I'm going to defend Slim for being a dumbass or anything like that. However, if you were going to, like, hide 
all of your elixirs and potions quickly. And I could see him thinking that he would pour them into these wine bottles as like cover, you know, and they had the little sheaths on top. So maybe, but then you pull it out and it says Moselle and you get taste it once and you could tell it doesn't taste like the potion or it's wine or it's not clear. Right. One sip and you should know that it's a bottle of wine. So meanwhile, back upstairs, Bruce and Vicky are getting engaged. Oh my God. And Jekyll's face. Holy crap. Is he pissed? Yeah. I mean, he tries to play it cool. Yeah. So Bruce and Vicky kind of come to him with this information that they've fallen in love with each other and want to get married. And Vicky's operating under the understanding that, you know, this is her guardian and anything that would make her happy would make him happy. Not one suspecting that he may have feelings of his own. Why would she? I mentioned Lolita earlier, but in that, like he kept telling Lolita how much he loved her. And, you know, he'd be like, oh, Lolita, oh, don't you know I love you, Lolita? Yeah. Bruce steps outside. Dr. Jekyll admits the truth to Vicky. He spills all the beans. Don't marry him. I'm the one that loves you. And here's the line. Since you were a child, you can't marry anyone but me. He was Mr. Hyde the whole time. Yeah, his plan is to turn Bruce into a monster with the formula and then kill him. So he's basically going to try and frame Bruce for all of the recent murders and take the credit and be the hero and then marry the girl. Which, not a bad plan. Possible, at least. You know what I'm saying? Like, reasoning makes sense. Like, he's got the thing. Like, who wouldn't believe him, right? Like, it's already been established it's not him. He's he's too much of a nice guy in the neighborhood. Uh, so yeah, that's a crazy plan that he's got there. Except he turns into the monster on his own, if I'm not mistaken. He's sort of reached the point where he doesn't need the formula. So to be honest, when I was watching it, it is a little jumpy and jarring to tell exactly what happens because one minute he's holding the needle and the next it's kind of knocked from his hand and it's stuck into the couch. And I was like, oh, did he prick himself with it and throw it as if to be like, ouch, you know? Or did he just kind of transform on his own because, yeah, there's enough in his system or like he doesn't need it anymore and, you know, he's uh, assimilated to it and it's like, yeah, he doesn't need it. Right. I know that happens in the book. He reaches that point where he just starts to change at will, or not at will, but like unaided. It's hard to say because there's no line in this. He doesn't turn to his assistant and say like, I can't use much more of this or else, you know, like I'll be uncontrollably turning back and forth. Hearing Vicky's scream, Bruce comes barging in and compared to the big brawl at the beginning of the movie, this is one of the sloppier fights. We've seen better choreographed fight scenes in these movies before this, but the entire scene is in aid of the gag where Lou Costello is going to repeatedly sit on the needle that is sticking out of the couch, setting up the final set piece. But what I love about this scene is that in this whole scuffle, Tubby sees the monster fighting with Bruce and is not once afraid, barges in there to save Bruce, which is cool. You see him like angry and like heading into the fray, which is which is a really cool change of pace for Lou Costello. Yeah, he's got a real backbone in this. Overall, in this entire film, as a character, Tubby has been braver than the last two guys put together. So now is like the final chase sequence. As they head out into the city, it's broad daylight this time. Not It's not nighttime. It's happening in broad daylight. Tubby starts to feel a little bit funny. We know what's going to happen because he's set on that needle like three or four times. He starts to change into a Mr. Hyde. Pandemonium ensues. 
when everyone thinks that they have Hyde. There's really two Hydes running around. So the police station's getting calls from all over the place saying the monster's here. And he's like, no, you can't. It can't be right. It, he, we just found out he's over there. And so now we've got everybody all over the place. It's actually not as confusing as it seems. I think the action is all pretty well directed. I thought so too. I liked actually cutting back to the police station like that. That worked as a bit going back and forth like three times like that. Well, he's here. Now he's there. Now he's both places. And like, how can that happen? I really like it being in daylight, the climax being a daytime thing for some reason. Hyde just kind of takes this leap out of a window, right? Bruce comes in with a gun and starts like shooting when there's two Hydes. And I think it is Karloff Hyde that jumps out of the window. Yes. I have to start writing down. I write Lou Hyde and Karloff Hyde in my. So Karloff's Hyde escapes first, and then Lou doesn't change until after they've all run out into the street. All in all, I think they handle the double hide goings on very well yeah like you say like it's very well directed in the sense that i never got confused as to who was which one even though they look identical for the most part like one's a little bigger than the other but i never lost track of who is who there's an easy way to, to track who's who throughout this whole sequence first of uh, all lose hide always gets like the gags all the comedy and he's also wearing a bowler hat where karloff's hide is wearing a top hat so yeah if, if the scene you're watching involves a top hat or, or if you miss that detail like is it a serious scene or is it a comedy scene like all the stuff with hide in the baby carriage which is pretty funny that's all lou cool yeah they stay consistent with keeping the monster in the horror territory and then keeping Costello in the comedy territory. Yeah, I think one of my favorite bits is the three-person bike. The tandem bike is good, yeah. Yeah, it's inexplicably the middle one on the three-person tandem bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then one of them is actually holding on to the back of the carriage, right? Like That was a good stunt, I thought. So yeah, it's just a really great scene full of all these different gags. There's that one part after Lou Hyde is left on the three-person bike. He like grabs the fire escape and gets like shot up through the fire escape oh, and like yeah. pulls himself onto the rest of it and then like makes his way up to the rooftop where I think like the finale is going to be. Yes. A lot of really great stunt work in this scene. On the roof, there's this really great sequence where there are the four of them, Bruce, Slim, Tubby, and Hyde are on either side of this like big box structure that's a gigantic chimney is that what that is or it's like part of like the chimney shoot of some type because at one point i believe a guy comes popping his head out of not that one but another part of the rooftop is like a chimney sweep moment where a guy like pokes his head out and looks right at one of the hides and like i think screams his head off or something so i thought it was just like a giant chimney like a shoot or something yeah i, I love how that whole scene was orchestrated where they all kind of sneak around but they're all going in the same direction so they don't really know where anybody is until one of them breaks the cycle just a fun moment there's a great scene where the two hides see each other love that yeah all in all it's it slows down a little bit, but I like the kind of round robin they do around the structure and creeping around a little bit and the hide and seek stuff. Like it's playing, it's playing perfectly fine to me. It's fun. It's not necessarily funny, but it's high energy. It's exciting. Yeah, you nailed it. It's not that this movie's funny, but it is fun. Like yeah. that, I think for me, sums it up just about right. So Hyde manages to escape from the rooftop and then make it back to his home as Vicky is calling in, you know, another sighting of Hyde. And there's some confusion with the police. 
But of course, she doesn't realize that Hyde is right behind her. It's like a real uh, dial M for murder kind of moment. The hand <laughs> comes around. There's a struggle. And as everybody else descends upon the house, Hyde escapes through the window. But the branch or the um, whatever he's climbing up doesn't hold his weight. So he falls to his death. And as he's laying out on the sidewalk, this is like another Batman scene with, with the Joker, uh, 1989 Batman. He's laying right. sprawled out on the sidewalk. He transforms back to his Dr. Jekyll self. And now lots of witnesses this time. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that Hyde was Jekyll or Jekyll was Hyde the entire time. Yeah, very, very dramatic conclusion there where he kind of tries to scramble away up the tree even higher and like, whoops, so it's like snap, loses his grip and his footing. And that's, that's the end. It's just like, it's a very hard out for Mr. Hyde <laughs> in this yeah. movie, which I appreciate, you know, it's, um, it was, again, it ended on like a very sort of jarring note where I was like, oh, wait, he falls? Oh, man. Okay. And then I guess, you know, you can't really have Abbott or Costello kill Dr. No. Jekyll like no. in cold blood either. Like, you don't want that at the end of this movie and stuff. So like, the, again, the monster needs to kind of take himself out of the game. Yeah. And very few deaths in these movies feel final. His felt final which yeah was cool with that all sort of wrapped up we have one last gag back at the police station slim thinking he has the real hide comes to turn him in and everyone's convinced it's the real hide and as the inspector is on the phone saying hey we got him he looks over and the unconscious tubby turns back into his usual self and i think slim and tubby are kind of kicked out of the police forever after this uh, yeah the final gag is that as his monstrous self tubby had bitten a handful of the officers oh that's right so when they look over at the other cops they've all turned into hides in the inspector all the cops they're all like weird hide monsters better than the ending last time right doesn't make any more sense because it's never established that a hide is a werewolf like Correct. you get bit by a hide you turn into a hide like no i would have bought it if like maybe he had a syringe in his pocket just because of reasons and then they like poked themselves with it or something oh, would have been evidence yeah but just because this makes absolutely no sense doesn't mean i don't totally love it like this is one of the coolest <laughs> buttons to the ending of any movie where it's like you turn around and there's like five freaking hide monsters that are cops and they're like coming after you like what is this saying about society like what social comment is this gonna bring to mind nowadays to someone watching this movie in 2023 i kid but like ultimately i did love that final joke i thought it was perfectly fine you're right it doesn't make any sense but i did like it more than the invisible man gag at the end and i think you know what i've been thinking about that and i think that my real problem with the invisible man gag is there's no reason for costello to have his legs face the wrong way the physiological aspect of that doesn't make any damn sense i can buy that he's invisible but i cannot buy that he was somehow cut in half and then put back together wrong that's a gag for the frankenstein movie i think i said that so my issue was really just that here does it make sense that hide biting somebody would turn them into a hide no but I, I agree with you that it is an entertaining button to end on regardless so yeah i was happy with that final sequence good note to end i think that's it for abbott and costello meet dr jekyll and mr hyde unless you have something else you'd like to add final thoughts overall i was actually kind of impressed like not that this is like some kind of exceptional film by any means or anything but that it is way different than what i was expecting to come along after last week but i mm -hmm. think maybe they saw what they did last week it was like we gotta pull it back a little we went a little too far and it's in fact they went way too far i still feel like they were restrained themselves a little 
little too much, you know, like they could have had a little more fun this time. Like they did when they met uh, Frankenstein and Dracula and stuff. Like, I feel like that had the perfect balance. This kind of introduces them a little too late in the game. They're not really as central characters as I had hoped to be, but overall, like I still love it. I, I love that Universal was kind of at war between making a, comedy and sort of a straight horror movie here again i just repeat i feel like they wish they had a chance to make just one straight dr jekyll and mr hyde movie before making this one and so it feels like they're making up for lost time a little bit which is again cool because i like the spin they put on the character it's very different than the jekyll and hyde that i'm familiar with you know he's already mr hyde in a lot of ways and then he just turns into an even worse dude and so they put their spin on it they fit the boys in pretty well and yeah in the end i was very pleased i was very satisfied i really had a great time watching it and i was very happy and i'm happy for what it is i don't really have a whole lot to add to that i feel very similarly to the way you feel it's not the one that i'm gonna put on most of the time but if i were to divide these movies into like three tiers so far this would be like the best of the third tier I had a lot of fun watching it. It was my first time with this one. I had never seen this one before. I think it's the only one that I haven't seen that we're going to cover in this run of movies. So yeah, I was really excited to watch it. It definitely took me in some places I wasn't anticipating, which is a good thing. I liked a lot of the the things that they decided to do with it. Uh, I I love that it was a monster movie first and an Abbott and Costello comedy second. Yeah, I've said just about everything that I have to say about it. I think people should definitely check it out unfortunately it's it's a little bit hard to find like i said it's not really included with the universal classic monsters sets i have the box set it's not in there the best way that i found to watch it i like to buy movies instead of rent them i'm sure you could did you rent this uh i actually own this one in an abbott and costello monster movie collection on its own i bought the shout factory 80th anniversary blu-ray box set so i've got like all 28 movies they did at universal i figured if i'm gonna buy one set i'll just buy all of them instead of piecing them up you know so that's how i did it there really weren't any extras on the disc unfortunately i was hoping that they would there would be something because the shot factory that's how i watched it great transfer definitely recommend it so all right well it's time for us to change back into our normal selves but before we do that we have some listener mail to get to we're getting so much mail pretty soon we're gonna need a jingle or something Okay, so this is a first for me, okay? I had two emails planned. Since we've been recording, we got a third email. Oh, wow. Awesome. I have not read it. I just see the subject line. I'm going to not read it ahead of time. I'm just going to go right into it, but we'll start in order. Okay, so our first email is from Hannah Bailey. She says, hi, Dan and Mike. I just want to pop in and tell you guys how much I appreciate your podcast. I very recently discovered the Universal Monster movies this year when a lot of them were put on Peacock for Halloween. I'm in my 20s, but had just never seen any of them somehow, and after watching Marvel's Werewolf by Night, big Marvel fan, I figured I would watch The Wolfman. I immediately fell in love with the movie. The tragic story of Larry Talbot really spoke to me, and the performance that Lon Chaney Jr. gives is so moving. I've been a huge fan of the 70s, 80s TV series The Incredible Hulk for years. All right. And I found so many similarities in Banner and the Hulk and Talbot and the Wolfman, which is probably one reason the movie and Chaney's performance stood out to me so much. After I was hooked, I watched the other movies slightly out of order, but did eventually see most of them except for the Mummy movies and the Invisible 
Man sequels that came after The Invisible Man Returns. The world building each movie contains is so amazing. I was most excited for the other appearances of Larry Talbot, and even after watching the other monster films, he still remains my favorite character. This led to me finding and watching more Lon Chaney movies and TV shows, and I am definitely oh. a huge fan of his now. I had never seen him in anything before The Wolfman, but have now seen 20 of his movies. Granted, they aren't all ringers, of course, but even in those more mediocre ones, I still appreciate Chaney's performances. When I finished these movies, I really wanted to know more about them and hear what other people think of them, so I came up with the idea to search podcasts. I started with The Wolfman, and your show's episode was the first to pop up. I started with that episode and have now listened to every episode you've done so far on the movies I have watched, and I'm making my way through the movies I haven't seen yet so I can hear your takes on those. The Monsters That Made Us gave me a way to enjoy these movies I have come to love even more than just watching them, and I thank you guys for that. Here's to many more episodes in 2023. Wow, what a great email. Thank you so much for reaching out. I appreciate you listening. I love that this young person is watching these 100-year-old movies. Yep. I love to be like, Marvel got me interested to go and check out the Universal Monster movies, and now I love those. Like, that's great. I love to hear that. It makes me so happy. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this show was so that I could just find a new way to appreciate this thing that I already liked and and share that with other people. And that's a big reason why I didn't want this show to cater only to the existing fans, right? I think that it's a big part of why I do it to help other people discover and also fall in love with these things too. So the fact that that is happening makes me so happy. I'm so proud of this show for, the, if only for that, right? I, a lot of times yeah. I feel like, well, what can I say about Dracula that hasn't already been said? You know, what can I say about Frankenstein or The Invisible Man, right? Like these these movies are, like you said, almost 100 years old. So they're well-worn territory for a lot of people. And so I don't approach this show as an expert. I'm a fan first and foremost. I do a lot of research and, and learn things myself. I'm not just presenting information I already know. So like I get to learn and then come on here and then share that information with everybody else. To me, that's been the number one goal of this show for me is just to share what I've learned and uh, to help people appreciate these things as much as I do and maybe create some new fans. So thank you very much for writing in. Um, it's emails like that that make me want to keep doing this show forever. Here, here. Okay, moving on. We have an email from Lester in Queens, New York. Hey, Dan and Mike. So I'm fairly new to watching the Universal Monster movies. Always knew about them, but haven't had a chance to watch them. Last Halloween, I saw a 48-hour live stream, which had the Universal horrors as well as the Hammer films. After seeing Frankenstein, that's where I got hooked. I can see why you both enjoy them so much. Just finished the Invisible Man series. Have you seen the Invisible Man Appears from 1949 or the Invisible Man versus the Human Fly, 1957? Wait. What? No. They're from Japan, and it's cool to see that these were made probably due to the popularity of the original. If you haven't seen them, I'd say they're worth a watch. Thank you for the fun show. Okay, so thank you for bringing those to my attention, because if you've made it this far in the episode, you'll know that I also want to include the few episodes of the Invisible Man TV series in our journey in podcasting. So who knows? I think the list of possibilities just grows and grows with every episode. But thank you so much for that letter, that email letter. What year is this? Thank you so much for listening. I love it. And I love that you watched a 48-hour streaming monster movie marathon on Halloween. So I did a little bit of research about The Invisible Man Appears and The Invisible Man versus The Human Fly. I didn't dive that deep into them, but I did just kind of do a quick Google search. And it turns out that uh, Arrow Films has released both of them. So we can get a boutique home release for both of these titles. <laughs> 
which is awesome because this is the sort of thing I would expect to just get lost to the annals of time. Right. That's another thing we should say is like, we'll watch it if it's available to watch. But again, like I know there's a couple of films lost time and history and things like that. So it's cool to know that, yeah, these companies like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome and Shout, they are doing a public service by digging deep into those old crates of crazy films and giving them a new life. So definitely. And to speak to the Japanese films, the only one that I was aware of before this was Frankenstein versus Baragon, uh, also known as Frankenstein Conquers the World. You're familiar with that one. That's basically a kaiju movie with a giant Frankenstein monster fighting like a lizard creature of some kind. It's a Godzilla style kaiju movie, but with a giant Frankenstein. I haven't seen it. It's awesome. I've seen it and it's great and I love it. And it's funny because like the uh, director of Godzilla, Ishiro Hondo, he's directed a couple sort of similar to the universal horror movies. Like he did a movie called The Human Vapor. It's from the 60s, but it plays very much like a universal monster film. He also did this crazy movie named Matango, where these people crash land on an island and start turning into mushroom people. Like it's He's done some wild stuff aside from Godzilla, this movie called Half Human. It's sort of um, like a King Kong type of thing. I always encourage people to dive deep into his other works aside from just Godzilla because he was a monster kid, you know, through and through. Totally, totally. Okay, well, thank you, Lester, for your email. I would love, again, love hearing from you guys. Glad you're enjoying the show. Okay, now our third email. I'm excited to see what this one has to say. It is a little bit long, so bear with me here. This is from Alex Long. He says, hello, I just discovered your podcast and love it. You guys are awesome. First question, where do you find all these films? I know a lot of them are streaming on Peacock, but is there any other source, either streaming service or YouTube channel that you use? Well, I can answer that question by saying that I bought the Blu-ray box set, which is really just a collection of the already established Universal Classic Monsters Legacy sets. They were out on DVD years ago. They've basically just taken those collections, like the Dracula Legacy collection and Frankenstein Legacy. They've put them all into one box set, and they are available on Blu-ray. So that's how I watch them. I have old DVD copies that I've acquired over the years, and I've watched them that way. But I do believe you could probably track them down and rent them on multiple streaming services i would imagine but i haven't needed to chase those down we haven't gotten to a movie yet that i don't own fortunately so i haven't needed to kind of uh, scour the internet for other ways yeah i know like whatever it is we decide to do next i will do as much as i can to own all of the movies so i don't have to worry about streaming and availability and all those things uh, as well too so yeah unfortunately i'm just not keeping an eye on what's available on streaming like you've said alex we know some of them are on Peacock, but I can't speak for the entire availability of all the movies uh, streaming-wise, unfortunately. So Down the line, we could talk about like where you could also watch this movie if you don't own it. Yeah, for sure. Second question. For your research, are there any movie history books or biographies you used or would recommend to people? I haven't really uh, discussed this on the show, but I should give credit. The primary source for me has been for movies like Dracula and Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. So those like big movies that where the discs have bonus features. I've really watched like 
all of the extras. I've taken some notes because that's coming right from the source. I've also used a book called Universal Horrors, the studio's classic films, 
Right. The possibilities are in. There's so many monsters and so many horror franchises that, like, at the end of the day, the podcast doesn't have to end. Years from now, we might be doing all the Chucky movies. Jaws isn't out of the realm of possibilities because that's a universal property, right? So the future is wide open, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I'm very excited. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. It's what keeps me up at night, but uh, in a good way. Alex goes on to write, this might be a stretch, but have you ever looked at the Conjuring movies, the Conjurverse, as I call them, in relation to the Universal Monster movies? I had not. I feel like it's the closest modern equivalent we have. The cultural impact of Annabelle is super similar, I feel like, to a Universal Monster. She has her own three movies, an upcoming knockoff movie called Megan, Annabelle as a Robot, and I work with kids who incorporate her into their games. A few of the younger ones think she's real. Besides Annabelle, I know they tried to make other characters like the nun a thing, but only Annabelle has actually become part of the cultural zeitgeist. Why is it that neither Universal itself or the Conjureverse could totally replicate the monster mass shared universe premise? Why does Annabelle resonate with people today in a way that monsters like Dracula used to almost a century ago? Is it that audiences is so aware of the social injustice that happens when groups of people are labeled as inhuman that we don't feel comfortable labeling a fictional character a monster if they look human? Or do we want the same thing that Dracula used to offer, but just in new ways that studios haven't figured out yet? I think American Horror Story also came close to having a similar impact when people cared about it. So for like the first five seasons, fans talked about the locations of the seasons as if they were fun characters. That show just dropped off in quality and people got tired of Ryan Murphy's bargain bin Oscar Wilde writing style, which is why it didn't create a successful Monsters brand independent of the property itself like Annabelle, but it's still an interesting comparison. Our audience is just fundamentally different now, or was Universal's success a fluke that can never be repeated? That is a great question, very well worded, that I was not expecting. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'll take a stab at it. Sure. Um, the Conjureverse isn't necessarily my favorite stuff out there. Like, I think the films are fine, but I think I have more of a problem with, like, the source, you know, of where those stories, like, supposedly came from. Um, you know, we mentioned the MCU a lot on the show because it reminds me of the style of the old Universal movies, you know, where it's like they can stand on their own, but they could also be part of a greater world, a shared universe like that. And I don't think you can manufacture that. Like, I think that just comes or it doesn't. And when you try, ergo, like something like the Dark Universe, like you fail spectacularly because mm -hmm. you got your chickens before they hatch, like the DC Universe did as well, you know, love it or hate it, like it just, they're starting over for a reason. I think what we got closest to was when Freddy met Jason. I was just going to say that. And if New Line existed now in the way it did, I'm sure by now they'd have met Ash and they'd have met Michael Myers. And I have a real feeling like that's what Blumhouse has been trying to do. And the pandemic kind of got in the way of that, right? Like the, the Invisible Man came out. It was really awesome. It was going to jumpstart sort of the uh, Blumhouse Universal monster relationship, as it were. And it just kind of started to stall. We're starting to get other things, other properties like Renfield as well, so that they're still coming about. We don't know how connected this world is yet, but I do still feel like the possibility exists. I just feel like the danger is setting out to do that. And I don't think Universal did back in the day. I think they just saw like, hey, we could keep sort of referencing ourselves and borrowing and connecting things along the way. Something like that is just incredibly difficult to plan for it. Yeah. It happens on its own in a lot of ways, you know, and you build a catalog of characters in a studio that are similar enough and can exist in a movie together. And that just takes time, luck and effort and audiences 
kind of wanting that too. It's a big crapshoot. It's really hard to crack that code. And um, I think that's the best answer I got tonight. I don't know that I agree that the universal monster verse, as we've been discussing it, that and, and the conjuring, I don't think it's a perfect comparison. You know, when Universal was making these movies, I think that the, the shared universe sort of happened by accident, like as you were sort of talking about. The best modern version of that is Freddy versus Jason. I just wish that that idea had taken off and become more successful where we get like Jason and Michael Myers and Freddy in a movie or throw in Leatherface, you know, some combination of those, but it's just, but it just never happened. But it was like this one thing that just sort of like almost happened by accident when, when New Line acquired both properties, they said, okay, we're just going to do this. But nowadays because of the MCU, everybody wants to create a shared universe. So now everyone's going in with the intent of creating that shared universe. Movies don't always stand by themselves as well as they used to. Every movie tries to, but I know nowadays when I miss a couple of the Marvel movies and I go see a new one, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't think I fully appreciate what's happening here. I think I've missed some things. And now, now I have the responsibility. I could go back and watch five movies so I can understand the new Black Panther. That's intimidating for people as well. I don't know if I was a movie studio that I would want to put that kind of pressure on my audience. I think the best way to go is to just make these one at a time. And if they work out, they work out. Because, you know, Universal tried to do it Marvel's way. They got through one movie and it flopped. And now Universal's bringing the monsters back. But The Invisible Man, right, was the first one out of the gate in this new era. And it doesn't connect to anything else. And the next thing coming out is Renfield. And that doesn't look like it belongs in the Invisible Man universe at all. And I honestly, I think that's the best way to go. Because eventually, maybe, if there's a way to bring them together, then you can if they're successful. But I think to put everything into a shared universe is kind of a mistake. So I don't know if I answered the question. I'm kind of just kind of going on and on. I think that the major difference with the Conjuring universe and with American Horror Story is that those were universes that I feel, maybe not with the first installment, but eventually became planned out. Ryan Murphy knew that when that first season of American Horror Story was success, he created a whole second season, which was entirely different. And it wasn't until, I don't know how many seasons, four or five or six or, or however many, when they were all successful, that he said, okay, now they're all linked. And then with the Conjuring, I think it's easier to do a sequel and then maybe do a prequel and then see what works, see what doesn't, keep what works, and then drop what doesn't. There's some level of, hey, this is a shared universe, so we're going to play around within the world. When I think about it in that context, I can sort of see how it's comparable to the Universal Monsters. But I mean, they're yeah. all still, with intent, branching off of the movies that came before it. Thinking about it, the Conjuring stuff has done a better job than most with their marketing of their world because the Warrens aren't in all of the movies, but... They're sort of loosely connected by doing prequels and jumping around the timeline and stuff. It disorients the viewer in a way to be like, okay, you don't have to watch them in any particular order. They can stand on their own to a certain degree. And then you could also be like, well, I want to watch all the Warren saga or whatever, like the ones with them specifically, or just the Annabelle sagas. So like they are doing a better job than most if that's what they want. I think The Conjuring was just, it turned out to be uh, like a hit and they're like, oh shit, like uh, let's keep going. You know, I don't think that it was the plan to be like we got the rights to all of the warrens like books or stories let's do this like let's set up their world i think they kind of stumbled into it and they're controlling it better than many others are controlling their franchises 
He goes on to say, there's also an interesting similarity between James Whale and Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch, The Lighthouse, and I think mm-hmm. a future Nosferatu, and you are right about that. They both see themselves as intellectual highbrow directors who only got into horror out of financial necessity. And it's that tension or dialogue between high and lowbrow elements which sets their films apart from the pack. Yeah, I like that statement. He mixes the high and the low, right? And he finds that balance where it's like he could, you could look at his work and be like, okay, he's just very particular, sophisticated filmmaker. But then it's like, wait, there's like a fart joke. What? (laughs) Something like that. So I appreciate his balance as well. I don't know anything about Robert Eggers doing these sorts of movies out of financial necessity. I can't speak to that. Alex, I'm going to defer to you on that. But assuming that's the case, I definitely could see that comparison. Robert Eggers seems to be having more fun directing horror than James Whale did. That's for sure. I mean, when we were in film school, you know, even then in like the 2000s, it was like, yeah, make a horror film, break into the industry. That was still sort of a mantra, you know? And so like, I know uh, that's what Sam Raimi did. That's what lots of people did. Um, That's a thing to do to get into the industry. And like, yeah, they are sort of cheaper on that end and have better dividends and stuff like that so yeah it's the great thing about horror movies that if you're if you're good at it they're cheap to make and they offer you a lot of freedom creatively evil dead is my favorite horror movie for that reason it's literally just a bunch of guys out in the woods doing everything they can to make a very very cheap movie look as cool as it does alex signs off saying sorry if you talk about any of this in earlier podcasts i haven't gotten to yet have a great day best regards alex Wow. Thank you for the extensive and very thoughtful email. I hope we were able to answer your your very good question, partially at least. And thank you so much for listening and taking the time to write such an awesome long letter. And thank you for listening. Keep listening. This is this is great. What a great episode. I mean, all the Batman connections, all the emails. I mean, I'm just, I'm on cloud nine. Yeah, the emails in some ways are my favorite thing about doing this show. The fact that people listen and write to us is something I never expected when we first started. I was like, I, I think I've said a handful of times on the show that I would have been happy with 10, 15 listeners. The fact that we hear from so many people is, is wonderful. And uh, so I'm glad to know that we are touching your lives. Thank you for touching ours with these emails. We will be back on Friday, February 24th for the introduction of the last of Universal's classic monsters. That's right. The iconic 1954 atomic age horror film Creature from the Black Lagoon. If we could do a 3D podcast, we would. When you're listening to the show, have someone spray in the face with some water. There it is. Yeah. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at The underscore Mikester. You can pretty much find me anywhere online at The underscore Mikester. I'm on Instagram as well. And all the other shows that I'm on the network at cageclub.me. I'm on many other shows, so check that out too. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes to help other people discover the show. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find a link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Stay spooky, everybody.